Fusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. The good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Sit back and relax while we tell you about evolving IQs and genetic engineering. I'm Victoria Bond. On this edition, we'll feature laser cloud busting, synthetic biology, and evolving IQs. But first up, here's the news with Ian Wolfe and Therese Chen. Laser cloud busting. The Sydney Morning Herald reports that Swiss researchers have made clouds by shining intense laser light pulses onto thin air. Within seconds, water molecules grew into drops a few thousandths of a millimetre thin. This was too small to fall as rain, but large enough to encourage the scientists to press on with the work. To get rain heavy enough to fall, they'll need water drops hundreds of times larger. A report on the tests appears in the journal Nature Communications. Shooting lasers into the sky could either help trigger or prevent showers. They could prevent an immediate downpour by creating so many tiny droplets in the air that none of them could grow large enough to fall. Chief researcher Kasparian believes that this could help make monsoons and floods less harsh. Their next step is to try sweeping the laser, like in a nightclub, so they can affect several kilometres at a time instead of just one spot. Previous attempts at making rain have involved pumping chemicals like silver iodide into the sky and had ambiguous results. With a Terramobile laser, you can turn it on and off at will and more clearly work out if it would have rained or not without your interference. So Ian, did the article mention anything about its applications in climate change? No. <laughs> Why don't we discuss its applications in climate change? Absolutely. Uh, there's huge things that can happen if you can make clouds or get rid of clouds. Or make rain. Indeed. Or make rain and thereby perhaps steal the rain that was going to happen somewhere else. Yeah, it seems like, you know, a gateway to a dystopic future, doesn't it? Like, can we actually use up all the water in our atmospheres by becoming too greedy? I don't think we'll use all of it up because the water is evaporating from the ocean all the time and from the lakes and the rivers. So there's a water cycle, and we can precipitate the local rain out, perhaps, before it would get to somebody else's fields. And particularly when you've got countries with land borders, that might become very significant if you're going to get the rain instead of them. But I don't think we're going to upset the cycle so badly that there'll be no rain at all. I think it's interesting that they're looking at preventing rain as well as causing it. And who knows, maybe you could reflect lots of sunlight back with extra clouds. That's true, but the, you'd be preventing the rain but creating more clouds. Yes. So, I mean, it would only be really applicable in, in hurricane or monsoon situations, as they were explaining. It wouldn't be a willy-nilly sort of, let's make it a beautiful 23-degree day as opposed to a rainy, sad one. <laughs> Not at this stage. And hopefully they won't actually do that because that sounds like it would mess up the climate. Definitely. So is this just um, a prototype or are they actually developing it into something usable? Well, at the moment they've got a prototype they're dragging out into the fields, like a garage-sized prototype. 
Um, but they're looking at going further because they really, I mean, if there's massive flooding, then if they can stop that happening, then they might save lives. I mean, I'm just wondering, how much can you really prevent the rain? <laughs> I mean, if you, the water will still be in the atmosphere. They'd also need to have to have huge fans, wouldn't they? <laughs> Like, it'll, it'll just recondense eventually, unless well, you want to keep zapping at it with lasers until the wind picks up. Is well, this exactly. what they're suggesting? They're talking about stopping immediate downpours. So they'll be able to go, right, it's about to be a really bad flood, so we'll zap it now so that it's more finely dispersed and it can't fall right now. And then they, they can hope for things to move to a better situation where it'll be less drastic. So it's more like emergency prevention, I think, they're looking at the moment rather than producing rain at will or producing fine weather at will. So next up we have a news article about two of my favourite things, which are infectious diseases and IQ. There's been a really interesting set of observational studies that has come out to see why there's just so much variation in IQ around the world, not only across nations but within them. There's been different theories as to why. So some of them have argued that colder climates are more difficult to live in. And so evolution favors higher IQs in these areas because you need to be really smart to survive. And then there's also some where evolution favors higher IQs in areas that are farther away from the evolutionary origin of humans, which is sub-Saharan Africa, because you need to be super evolved and super smart to um, survive in, in these environments that are really different to what initially we'd been born into. So some researchers took it upon themselves to test all of these ideas as well as their own, which is that infectious diseases acquired during childhood actually suck away from the resources that a developing brain needs to to reach its full potential. In 2010, they had a study that not only found a very strong relationship between the levels of infectious disease and IQ, but they also controlled for the effects of education, national wealth, temperature, and distance from sub-Saharan Africa. The only factor that emerged as the best predictor for IQ was actually infectious disease levels within the populations. So this leads to the conclusion that infectious disease may be the only really important predictor of average national IQ. And theirs is is not the only study. There there have been some that have shown that... um, Children infected with intestinal worms, for instance, have a lower IQ later in life. And there's also one that looked at um, Mexico. Areas that have targeted malaria eradication programs have higher IQ than areas that didn't have these programs. And I think it's a really interesting study because it shows that human intelligence is mutable. I mean, there's, there's kind of an argument going on of how much is human intelligence genetic and how much of it is environmental. And this would point towards it's actually pretty influenced by our environment and by what we're exposed to during childhood. So it, it's quite optimistic, I think, in terms of um, improving IQ worldwide. I mean, treat infectious diseases, give our children a chance. But what do you guys think? So, so their argument is that um, in, if you have infections, if you have lots of, lots of things, it takes all your, your body's resources away from the developing brain. That's right, because you're pouring them all into fighting this infection and creating fevers and your metabolism is is stunted or affected. And so I've seen, I mean, definitely nutrition, that those are really impressive figures. Are these figures that impressive? Because are they talking about parts of the world where there's lots of disease, have has a lower, they, they have lower IQ separate to nutrition? Well, what they did was actually they looked at 
specifically in the United States. So they, they picked a country that had pretty good baseline nutrition, and they also picked a country that had a pretty standardized education. And it, it still followed through. So the five states with the lowest average IQ all had higher levels of infectious diseases compared to the states with the five highest average IQs. And um, the relationship actually held through for all the states in between as well. So it's kind of a dose-responsive thing, according to the researchers. It's an interesting correlation, but I'm not sure I'm convinced of the mechanism. Unless they can show a mechanism, of course. Yeah, they haven't demonstrated a mechanism, so it's just an observational conclusion at the moment. But I think it is very interesting. It is. I mean, anything that they can do to let people reach their full potential, vaccines and proper medical care, I mean, perhaps this will be an outcome of Obamacare where the poor can actually get access to medical care in America, they might be smarter and more productive and happier. There was a recent article in in Cosmos where they were discussing the importance of infectious, like intestinal worms, in relation to a person's um, immunity. So it's a very interesting interplay in what is important for a person's survival, a combination of their health and their intelligence, I think. Electronically active temporary tattoos. An international team reports in the journal Science that an epidermal electronic system, EES, embedded in a membrane that sticks to the skin like a temporary tattoo, could transform medical sensing, computer gaming and even spy operations. The patch could monitor brain, heart and muscle tissue activity, and it's been found that when placed on the throat, it allowed users to operate a voice-activated video game with better than 90% accuracy. This could help people with larynx problems and could be useful for subvocalizing by people using speech as data entry or by secret agents in the field. The tiny device uses wireless for power and data, and it's so thin that it uses electrostatic van der Waals forces to stick to your skin without glue. The devices might find future uses in patients with sleep apnea, babies who need neonatal care, and for making electronic bandages to help skin heal from wounds and burns. This story excited people attending the Singularity Summit, who'd like to extend their abilities with electronic tattoos that can be peeled off when a newer and better version comes out. Trust the primary application of this to be computer games. (laughs) Well, I reckon they want to make a buck to be able to subsidise the medical uses. Would the function of this device be primarily sensory or could it also do stuff for people? Well, it's looking like their initial thoughts are all about the sensors. So they want to put vibration sensors and EEG sensors and so on. But I can't see any reason why it couldn't do much more than that. It's basically sticking a little miniature electronic package on the outside of your skin that you could just wear around. And so it transmits to a mother console via wireless? That's the idea. So people would be perfectly free to walk around with these tiny sensing devices? Exactly, exactly. No wonder they're thinking about spying with it. Mm. That's really scary. Yeah, I mean, it could be easily cosmetically changed so you couldn't see them, I guess. Diffusion is recorded in the studios of 2SER in Sydney, broadcast on 107.3 FM 
and across Australia on the Community Radio Network. Send us emails to diffusion at 2SER.com. Most people know something about GM. Genetic engineering is best known for its applications in agriculture, where valuable crops are transformed to become more nutritious and to better fight off insects. In the lab, genetic modification of cell lines, or model organisms, has also become routine in order to test the function of unknown genes. But in both cases, we're usually talking about a single gene and its very specific function. Dr. Mick Cavazzini speaks to Dr. Jim Hasselhoff of Cambridge University about the fusion of new molecular techniques and engineering principles to construct synthetic organisms from scratch. Dr. Jim Hasloff from the University of Cambridge thinks we are on the cusp of a revolution in synthetic biology, that we're now able to construct microbes and plants that contain a host of new functions to solve complex environmental or industrial problems. Designer microbes might in the future more efficiently light our streets or generate biofuels or even target tumours in the human body. This bottom-up approach to genetic engineering received a boost in January of last year when a team of 17 researchers at the Craig Venter Institute in San Diego reportedly created life by inserting the largest ever synthetic genome into a stripped-down bacterial cell. I began by asking Dr Hasloff what the significance of this event was. Well, I think um, there's two things here. So one is that it's not creating life. It's essentially copying an existing genome, refactoring it slightly. So there's a, a few changes, but all well within our capabilities. Um, but what, what Craig Venter's result did lay out was a clear challenge for biologists that it is now possible to build that scale of, of DNA assembly and do that in such a way that you can have a million base pairs to play with. And at the current state of the art, our ability to build and design novel DNA-based circuits is in the order of 10 to 20,000 base pairs, not million base pairs. And so we have this clear demonstration that our ability to synthesize the DNA far outstrips our ability to conceptualize and, and, um, and design a DNA circuit. In fact, it's mapping out the useful components of the DNA um, with which you've been involved with. Tom Knight of MIT has created the BioBricks Registry. This is a library of genetic building blocks that, if you look it up on the website, it looks something like the interface of a Nintendo strategy game. Can you tell us what kind of things, what, uh, what kind of devices have been entered into this registry and how do they differ from conventional gene constructs? Well, the, um, the difference between this registry, the contents of this registry, and normal molecular biology is that these are all standardised parts. So each piece of DNA that's entered into the registry fits into a particular standard. And it's a, a standard which says that uh, this piece of DNA must have a defined function, and it has special sequences at each end of it, which allow it to be joined to other members of the same registry, essentially like Lego bricks. So they have a standard interface for building larger and larger pieces of DNA. And so by making one of these biobricks, you essentially are making it plug compatible with all of the other biobricks in the library. What's more, if you take two biobricks and join them together, by the process of joining, you um, uh, essentially create a new biobrick, which is then compatible with all the others as well. Um, the 
contents, that the functions that are embedded in this Biobrick library are quite diverse. <clears throat> so they started out with bacterial sequences essentially derived from E. coli, which is a, you know, the workhorse for molecular biology. Uh, but they now extend into other microbes, um, gram-positive microbes, which are more highly used for agriculture and, um, and industry. They extend into yeast, and now we're seeing the first um, uh, mammalian biobricks, which are, have potential therapeutic applications. This biobricks registry is like a mechanics catalogue. Every year, Dr Hasloff and his colleagues send this catalogue out to students around the world for iGEM, a competition to design genetically engineered machines. They spend the summer designing fluorescent bugs or artificial neurons, and any newly combined genetic constructs are fed back into the Biobricks registry for anyone else to access. It's a bit like open source GM, and is intended in part to diffuse some of the scepticism the public has about opaque and sinister commercial institutes in the biotech industry. One of the most compelling examples of circuit board genetics to come out of the competition was a dish of bacteria that can be photographically imprinted. Yeah, well, this is from um, Andy Ellington and Chris Voigt's labs. They collaborated, so, um, and it was partly an iGEM project, but has spun out uh, with a life of its own. And it's, it's, I think it's one of the best examples of for want of a better word, the composability of genetic circuits, where you can make individual circuit modules which do a particular thing, and each one of which can be tested in an isolated fashion. And, for example, one thing would be in this, this particular circuit, you're asking bacterial cells to receive a signal when they have light projected on them or not. So they've used or created, in fact, a receptor which is um, a hybrid. So it's partly E. coli, for a signal that goes back into the E. coli cell. And on the outside, you have a signal which receives light, and that's from a cyanobacterial cell. And so you have a hybrid protein which receives a signal, then converts that by a conformational change into a signal that's sent into the bacterial cell. And that turns into a signal which turns on gene expression inside the cell. And so this little circuit, which is essentially a light receiver, can be tested, and you can test that by itself. What's more, you can also establish other circuits, like an inverter circuit, which takes a positive signal and makes a negative signal. You can convert a, 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 a what's called an edge detector circuit, where you have essentially a social interaction between adjacent bacteria, some of which might be exposed to light, some of which are in the dark. So it's a sort of a, like an edge detector you see in Photoshop. If it's you Photoshop use... for bacteria. Exactly. Um, and it's autonomous, of course. So rather than apply an algorithm across a whole field, the algorithm is embedded inside cells in a, in a multi-billion pixel uh, um, film. Many will have heard about the application of genetic engineering in agriculture to increase yields or nutrition of food crops. In Australia, the future of our crops might depend on increased tolerance to pests, drought or salinity. But scientists have also developed crops that feed into other industries, this season, corn farmers across the US planted corn that is specially designed to express high quantities of the enzyme amylase, which greatly speeds up the fermentation of starch into bioethanol. Biofuel production is an inefficient process that is very costly in terms of water and energy, and in the best case scenario would only replace 30 or 40% of current fossil fuel use. 
However, liquid fuels are the only viable option for long-range transport until battery technology improves enormously. The new GM corn is useless for food production, a fact that has made environmentalists and aid organisations understandably nervous. Coming from a different angle, Chris French from the University of Edinburgh has theorised of a designer microbe that could skip stages of the fermentation process and produce ethanol directly. And while on that track, why not tailor microorganisms to clean up polluting industrial processes or produce useful chemical byproducts? A number of the smaller fuel companies, which are perhaps closer to the, you know, the, the, the raw technology, are coming up with some very interesting um, ideas. And there's two aspects. One is to use more fuel-rich polymers um, that, that are being produced more, for example, hydrocarbon or terpene-based outputs from metabolic pathways and rejigging, re-engineering the pathways that are present in some of these organisms to produce more energy-rich compounds and scaffolds or skeletons, chemical skeletons, which can be used not only for these energy-rich compounds, but also fine chemicals. And uh, there are um, are frameworks that are already in place which envisage replacing some of the feedstocks for the chemical industry that rely at the moment heavily on, almost exclusively on petrochemical products, and replacing those with various um, simple molecules or polymers that are derived from biological sources. I mean, in a way, this is a, is a representative of, of some of the earliest human technologies where we use microbes or um, you know, fungi, bacteria to ferment material and to produce stuff that we would like and we find useful. And if it's anything from making ginger beer to uh, pickling cheese, uh, soy, uh, various soy products, um, uh, compost heaps, um, all kinds of biological processes we've used in the past and to my mind also what's interesting about these processes is that they're generally regarded as quite benign processes and they're, they're quite stable and I think that's the kind of technology and the kind of, well not technology, the kind of approach to not be focused on top-down approaches, not be focused on some kind of centralised control but rather to think about it in distributed control and I think sometimes there's this tendency as a kind of anthropomorphic tendency to equate lack of centralised control with lack of control. You know, it's where you've got these distributed local systems which are so much more stable than any human device. You know, anything that we you know, buy or have this direct experience with, if you, if you buy a computer or a phone or whatever, you drop it and it's gone, it's broken. Whereas in, you know, biological systems... You can go out in your garden and prune away and make a mistake here or there. And, and, and there are systems in, inside the organism which deal with damage, deal with changes on a you know, local basis. And, and they're constrained. So they don't change anything away f- you know, apart from the local changes they make. And they're just looking at the neighbouring cells. They don't make any global changes. There's no real problem as such with affecting things in an unexpected way because they only, they're limited in what they can do. They only interact uh, to, with systems a, a few microns or millimetres or centimetres away from themselves. So you have these systems which really do provide an inspiration for modern, sort of more directed human engineering, whereas the kind of constructions that we uh, engineer by conventional top-down processes get more and more complicated and 
the yield becomes poorer and poorer because all it takes is one element to break and the whole thing's useless. So who knows, we may yet design microbes to clean up dirty industrial processes and replace our insatiable demand for fossil fuels. Such applications are obviously a little way off and fraught with ethical and environmental concerns. Dr. Hasloff insists that these concerns be considered well in advance, with an exchange of views between the research community and the public. But these technologies cannot be ignored and may provide relatively rapid solutions to some of the holes we've dug ourselves into over the last two centuries of industrialization. Dr. Hasloff's laboratory in the Department of Plant Sciences at Cambridge has published widely on the self-organization of plant tissues and won awards for their mind-boggling fluorescent microscopy. Check these images out and find out more about the International Genetically Engineered Machine Competition at www.hasloff-lab.org. I'm Dr. Mick Cavazzini, reporting for 2SER Diffusion Science Radio. That was Dr. Mick Cavazzini speaking with Dr. Jim Hasloff about advances in genetic engineering and the future of synthetic biology. I think it's fascinating that they're basically taking what I see as like the, the zeros and ones of the GATC that's hard for us to understand, and they're putting it into building blocks in these bio bricks, which is almost like a programming language or like digital electronic elements where you can you know what each little unit does and you can clip them together to make bigger units. And then once they're properly understood, you can include that in the library or the language. And so you can actually understand and do some sort of engineering or programming or, or construction with these things as if they were machines while still understanding that they're living organisms. It seems to me like it's vastly increasing the usability. They compared it to Lego pieces and I thought that was a really good analogy because I wasn't really sh- sure I understood before then what they were describing. The fact that all the bits connect to all the other bits and that's really, really clever. So there's huge potential. They've not just made something new, they've made a new tool that who knows what people will be able to make from it. And that's all from us this time on Diffusion. Diffusion is produced in the studios of 2SCR. Contributing to the program were Therese Chen and Ian Wolfe. Diffusion has been hosted and produced by me, Victoria Bond, in the studios of 2SCR in Sydney and broadcast nationally via the Community Radio Network. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio.